Welcome, my dystopians. I'm Raul Guerrero, and you are listening to the Dystopian Republic. Today's story begins on the wee hours of September 6th, 1999, at the La Costa del Norte side of its border with Las Grandes Cascadas, a sizable lodge sat lightless at the half-valleyed summit of Emerald Hilltop. Its floors at and above the ground mixed wood, brick, and glass into a cozy yet refined cocoon, showing nothing that warranted raising any red flags. Below the surface, the lodge was an intelligence office with a situation room at its middlemost point. Upton Sr. informed his Red Wasps that a lead regarding the whereabouts of 21 ex-Yellow Crossers who targeted them and their loved ones during the Civil War had been received. He said that an abused bookkeeper informed him that the Yellow Jackets in question were living at her place of work. Upton added that where she worked had high voltage flowing in its outermost walls and fencing. The bookkeeper said that her workplace was unseeable from the air thanks to a compressed jungle completely concealing a biodome that totally enshrouded a community of estates in its cloudy myrtle color. Already pleasantly surprised what Upton would learn next had him salivating like a hyena spotting its first meal in days. The bookkeeper said that the place she described was in an unincorporated area of the island where the Sajonian Islands' capital of Hisalakwa was located, but that wasn't all. She obtained the identities of six recent arrivals, Dina, Windsor, Eileen, Keller, Blythe, and Norwood. A boxy rockabye jingled in a circular motion as Dawn stripped the dome of its utter black and turned the lights inside it on. The music looped on and on as three of the self-same, gently waking up Sidney De La Rosa, Francis Duran, and Marie Jimenez. Its jingle was softer than a cotton ball and had the subtlety of a stirring mouse making sure that the month-old infants didn't come down with any reason to tear up or wail. Sidney was the son of Dina and Windsor, Francis was Eileen and Keller's daughter, and Marie was the girl Blythe and Norwood brought into the world. Aside from it touching everything in its area, the dome's domineering green meant that it was hidden and secure. Dina, Eileen, and Blythe breastfed Sidney, Francis, and Marie, respectively, as Windsor, Keller, and Norwood cooked up a turtle soup that smelled as good as it tasted. Not one thing about their latest morning warned them of what was happening around them. Right when the Sajonian Islands' Congress went into session, a number of pocket-sized explosives detonated. 
with the unicameral legislator now engulfed in smoke, a dozen armed, masked individuals came rushing in and rapidly fired at the ceiling and walls. The pistols possessed by national police were no match for the fully automatic rifles their intruders carried like bazookas. Numerous officers died immediately after being mowed down while only one gunman sustained a bullet wound to the left thigh. The remaining police barricaded themselves, the legislators, and their staff in the main chamber, locking the entrances and blocking them with whatever furniture they could find. Unlike their fallen, the living officers had weapons similar to the ones that the gunmen possessed, arming them enough to hold the intruders off and reduce their numbers by a noticeable amount. That gave the Sajonian Islands' yellow-jacketed president the time needed to dispatch his military, but they weren't the only people who were en route. Meanwhile, in the dome, Sidney, Francis, and Marie rested on a wool blanket in the living room as the six looked on in reflection. This was when the three infants looked at one another for the first time, opening their eyes completely and exchanging bright smiles. Dina grinned, thinking about how shocked she, Eileen, and Blythe were when their pregnancy tests came out positive. In the weeks leading up to their crime spree during it, in the hours after arriving in the islands, the women missed their periods, felt their breasts swell and become tender to the touch, and had more than a few bouts with nausea. How similar Sidney looked to his father and him being the first to smile had Dina and Windsor pinky swear to never expose their son to their pasts. Eileen and Keller smiled like proud parents when Francis adorably poked the blanket's polka dots. Blythe and Norwood's eyes grew teary upon seeing Marie doze off as if she was counting sheep. Hearing legs march and guns load, the six looked out a window as two out of every three troops left guarding booths and reported to the main armory. Norwood's first thought was that the president deployed them to either squash an uprising or foil a plot that would have become one. Not worried at all, Dina wished that she could see the liberals rebelling be held up by their ankles and ripped apart like cattle. Keller didn't know why, but something about the latest rebellion gurgled his stomach and heaved its acidic juice and steam to his esophagus. It reminded Eileen and Blythe of the lives they ran away from, sickening Windsor into telling his friends to take the babies and head for the basement where their past can't touch them. The room was a sanctuary with as much square feet as the Six's estate, giving them plenty of space to recreate their brightest hours in timeline form. Its path from the door along its walls within them and back to said entrance 
had the look and feel of a museum's exhibit. Steps forward weren't necessary for the six to relive their first time under one roof. It was on the night Grimsby Sr. celebrated his 77th birthday at the world-famous Theodore Bettencourt Memorial Farm in Lobotown. Since their parents were prominent political figures either federally, provincially, or locally, they were invited with open arms and sweet kisses, which meant that the six attended the party also. Taking place in September 1975, the closest Dina and her friends got to interacting was when their baby carriages were left in a cluster for the armed guards to protect. They thanked their lucky stars that they were too young to remember the party's ending. It was a night so sad that it had the six walking past their first memory and onto the second. Their first days in concert came when they started kindergarten in the autumn of 1978. A game of mommy and daddy with an elaborate dollhouse set was how Dina made friends with Windsor. Their game was interrupted by Blythe hitting her head on a sliding glass door she thought was open for her to run outside through. Crying for the whole class to hear, Norwood was the first to tend to her, hugging her and rubbing her forehead where the impact occurred. Keller became the second of two to get hurt that day when three boys dunked his head in a bucket of red paint. Eileen was so red in the face that she beat the trio up and force-fed them handfuls of the lead-free liquid. Her teacher's intention to discipline her lights out for fighting was preempted by news of a hostage situation at the Ferdy Luxor Suites and Penthouses. The hotel's Perda in Las Grandes Cascadas hid the Yellow Cross Caucus's annual meeting from outsiders. Dean Sr., Joyce, Barrett, and Beasley were in attendance, as well as Wilford and Rosalind De La Rosa, Hollis and Suzanne, Pruna, Marshall and Kelly Duran, and Blanton and Milligan Jimenez. How the siege ended bloated Dina's internalized anger, saddened Windsor, ticked Eileen off, made Keller shiver, endlessly dismayed Blythe, and offended Norwood. It wasn't until 1982 when the Sixes Union was finally born, during Lobotown's turn for their youth to experience camp sunshine for that year, even though the children in said municipality remained in their bubble. That trip was one of the rare instances where that spear moved outside of its place of origin. The Six were a team in the basketball tournament, finished 
1 through 6 in the archery contest, lost the baseball game together, and excelled in rock climbing. But their fun at camp would later turn into an attack and siege that raised Dion Town to its definite disaster. Norwood frowned colder than dry ice and as sternly as a man with a fist of iron. Eileen fell to her knees and left hand thrusting her right middle finger back and forth. Keller gently but intensely pulsated his disquietude out his canines and onto his index knuckles. Losing her sweet grin, Blythe reminisced over how blessed she and her friends were not to have been hurt by the civil war that tore Bromelia apart. Her indulging drooped to glooming over the years that preceded the fighting and months that saw it move up and down Meseta del Cielo into Lobotown and all the way to Gregorio Jr.'s castle. Countless alarms went off at once, cutting the Six's walk down memory lane short and signaling that a breach was being attempted. Windsor shut his eyes, covered his mouth and nose, and dismally groaned, provoking Dina into letting out an infuriated shout. Since the stalemate between officer and gunman began, the two sides engaged in the toe-and-fro of gunfire, where neither advanced nor lost ground. This would change when troops from the community raided the legislator by the many dozens, feeling their inevitable demise close in. The gunmen clipped off the tops of canisters that sprayed an odorless, tasteless smoke that wasn't tear gas. Ready to exhaust their magazines, their officer and troop enemies charged them into a middle that exposed their sight hearing, smell, taste, and feel to the vapors, knowing darn well what the gas was capable of doing. A young teenage Upton Jr. muted his headphones to spare himself of hearing all three factions suffer excruciating deaths. Thanking his fallen gunmen for embarking on such a hopeless quest, he promised them that their sacrifices will not go unrewarded. Upton was in the driver's seat of a compound hiding in the damp, disorientating green of a small, unincorporated island. He ordered several of his other battalions to come out of their nests and swarm the community. Upton knew that his attack on the legislator would greatly reduce the number of troops defending the community. His attempted coup that never was proved to be the perfect way to force the Sajonian government to exhaust much of their resources on defending themselves, leaving a number of their deep, dark secrets vulnerable to exposure. 
Shortly after the alarms started sounding, a distress signal was sent to a fortress as white as the Antarctic blizzard blowing on it with its snowy air. Dean Jr. had the stool scared out of him when his computer's interface informed him that the community was under attack. Besides the breach being attempted, the fact that he made his sister and her friends move into the dome under his belief that they'd be safe there had him face-palming. Dean Jr.'s next thought put him in a panic mode fuller than an emperor who's just seen the writing of his rule on the wall, pressing him to pick up his phone and frantically dial. The six scooped their napping babies out of their cribs and rushed a quarter mile down a stairway independent of the one leading to their basement. They met up with the dome's other residents during their run through the cavern and after reaching the shelter. It was what they were supposed to do if an attack were to ever occur as said place had immunities that their homes, the dome, and its vicinity did not have. An administrator played a message Dean Jr. recorded just before the evacuations were declared. He regretted informing the dome's residents that a breach of their community was being attempted and may succeed, but added that the Sajonian government is aware of the situation and that their military, as well as his militias, will arrive shortly. Dean Jr. minced no words when he said that regardless of how the attack ends, their community was through operating as a covert shelter. He added that since the dome's cover had been blown open for all to see, it would be inevitable that the ongoing attack would not be the last thing that would hit the residents if they knew what he meant. Dean Jr. couldn't afford to have either the Dome or Sajonian government fall under enemy control. The classified materials shared amongst the three parties could lead rival authorities and militias to other entities like the one that Mosley and Turnbull were a part of and ultimately to his fortress in the Ellsworth Mountains. Norwood wondered if Dean Jr. had gone insane for thinking that any resident would evacuate at such a dangerous time in broad daylight. Dina thought to herself that her eldest brother was in the process of setting up evacuation routes and points akin to those she and her friends took to evade capture after the inhibition break. Blythe was one of the very few residents who didn't fear for their lives, believing that the intruders won't live to see the sun go down. Keller struggled not to fear the worst over what Dean Jr. said about the Dome's secrecy and security being irreparably tainted. Windsor hated that he and his friends were going to need to embark on their second major move in almost a year, begging for the world to leave him and them alone. Eileen quailed over how the constant moving would impact Sidney, Francis, and Marie's developments. Minutes into his tea time with Misha, 
Upton Sr. called Upton Jr. to obtain a verbal status report on their effort to assume control of the dome. His son told him that all was going according to plans as the Sajonians were blindsided by the two-step attack, expecting nothing more than an easily quashable coup attempt. Upton Jr. told Upton Sr. that while his troops have wiped out the dome's defenses, they're now having to deal with the Sajonian military and Dean Jr.'s forces. His father instructed him not to fall into another one of his tantrums, urging him to remember why he was made a leader in the first place. That sobered Upton Jr. into saying that his father won't be let down, egging him into telling his troops to give him victory or die pursuing it. Maya spent that day sleeping in preparation for an overnight shift her supervisor forced her to take or be fired. This left Austin, Andre, Arlo, and Avery to spend their afternoon in the playroom serving them frozen meals and junk food between games. During a ring around the Rosie, the cousins cheerfully fell down as their happy-faced telephone rang. Austin picked up the phone and was joyous to hear Upton Jr. on the other line putting their call on speaker so that her cousins could involve themselves. The conversation that followed levitated the five into a poetic, tuneful seventh heaven that would remain fresh and vivid in their psyches for years afterwards. After that little break, Upton Jr. smiled, his panting as communications amongst his forces made the upper hand they had on their far-right enemy loud and clear. Dean Jr. couldn't believe that he was hearing his militias and the Sajonian military be outmatched and outgunned by their much smaller opponent. He trembled anxiously as the last resort in his disposal was on its way to becoming his only remaining option. Desperately thinking of any action, Dean Jr. thought of an idea that wasn't much better than the one he dreaded enacting. It had its own risks and was less likely to succeed in defeating Upton Jr.'s forces, but its consequences would be far less severe should it work. Dina, her friends, and the other residents were shocked to find a directory detailing much more to their shelter than an enclosing shield. The administrator from earlier flagged down the six and seated them in his office to answer an urgent conference call. Dean Jr. was first to greet Dina and her friends, then Mosley and Turnbull would say their hellos right after. It had been close to three years since the four Malio kids last spoke together, their previous interaction taking place during the final month of Gregorio Jr.'s reign. That talk ended with Dean Jr. fleeing Bromelia, mostly in Turnbull, going into hiding and Dina staying in Lobotown to comfort their hounded parents. The eldest Malio kid's chance to detail what he wanted the six to do for him was crushed by news that Upton Jr.'s forces have breached the dome. It broke Dean Jr.'s spirit like a window 
being blown away after a hurricane force gust. His failing to protect a hideaway of his from enemy seizure was something he could not believe was happening. Mosley found the dismay coming out of Dean Jr. as a bad sign, itching Turnbull into asking if anything new about the breach attempt had come up. The eldest of the Malio kids was put on the spot by the youngest not to tell her that the intruders have breached the dome and will soon do the same to the shelter. Sickened by what he couldn't prevent, Dean Jr. told Dina that what she told him not to tell her had come about. Moreover, his militias uncovered radio communications from one of the fallen intruders revealing that both they and the gunmen were operating under Upton Jr.'s direction. This segued to Dean Jr.'s plea for Mosley and Turnbull to root out any dissent in their circle and prepare for a breach of their hideaway. The eldest Malio kid suddenly put the call on hold after receiving word that a teenage girl, Upton Jr., set up to be kidnapped, had a whistle to blow. His brothers, sister, and her friends faced a sitting hour that tormented them by having the intruders move like mice. A full 66 minutes later, Dean Jr. pressed the call out of hold, resuming it with a tone that was a lot more composed, but still very somber. He told his brothers and the six that he now knew what must be done and said that they'll find out what it'll entail soon enough, hanging up without a goodbye or even an intention to call back later. Right after Upton Jr.'s forces breached the dome, they were slightly jolted by the radical change from white sunlight to green dimness. Their leader contentedly rested his head on his palm and elbow on his chair's right armrest. One of his troops told him that he ought to be with his people right now because they've gotten their hands on a real beauty. Thirty yards into the dome, Upton Jr.'s militants were wowed by a sparkling pond that had an islet with tall trees at its center. They could tell that it had been rested on and swam in as recently as the moments leading up to when the alarms sounded. For a few in their ranks, it conjured up the mermaids and mermen they pretended to be as preteens of believe the six made in kind at an almost identical pond in Lobotown. An additional tenth of a mile led Upton Jr.'s militants to a warmly lit, enchanting, and rainbow-like flower garden. Bracing for more combat, they reloaded their guns and tiptoed along a vintage stone path as bright, colorful flashbacks intoxicated them. A different few of Upton Jr.'s forces remembered their childhood frolics through the cut flower patches of Alexi Fossa. The garden was a collage of the ones that were behind the memorial farm, which was where Dina, Eileen, and Blythe declared their loves for Windsor, Keller, and Norwood and found that the deep affection was mutual. Even as teenagers, their intimacies were worlds more solid and mature than many marriages. 
explaining their discoveries to Upton Jr., his militants had a ball seeing how well people like the Six lived in the Dome. They salivated at the prospect of making its ex-Yellow Crossers feel the agonies that Sinclair could have but didn't unleash upon them. Having seen enough, Upton Jr.'s militants started kicking front doors open in search of residents to capture, then execute or annihilate right where they hid. Their sweet lust for fascist blood soured to annoyance when no one from the community was found in any of the homes or places previously mentioned. Upton Jr.'s troops told the residents to come out wherever they were and that hiding will not do them any good. Most were on the lookout for ex-Yellow Crossers who may try to cut and run while a handful crammed into an intercom booth. A militant of Upton Jr.'s paged the device on, pinned one of its phones against her walkie-talkie and told him that he may now speak. The cold that chilled the residents' veins did the same to their shelters every wall, hitting the six even harder as they held Sidney, Francis, and Marie like teddy bears. Dina swore on her life that she'll rip up any commie who lays a finger on her angel of a boy. Eileen dared Upton Jr. and his ilk to try and take her sweet little girl and see what happens. Blythe's heart raced as the heaving urge to squall over losing her one and only girl was a moment or two from being too much to fight off. Norwood's skin pinkening rage saved her from blowing out a cry that could inform their enemies of the shelter's existence. Calling them fascist devils, Upton Jr. greeted the residents, introducing himself as Upton Sr.'s vice, chair, and son. Windsor looked up resentfully over the immense iron-willed pride he took in those two facts, taking Dina and Norwood to that same feeling. Upton Jr. saw it very fitting that the people who turned the world to hell would be the same ones desperate to be out of its sight. He expected fascies like the residents hiding from his people to run and hide like cowardly worms when their fortunes ran out. Upton Jr. sneered at them for believing that no one would ever be lucky enough to find their dome and have the smarts and resources to breach and take it over. His advice for the residents was to be as calm as possible in their final moments alive as his militants won't stop until their shelter is found and broken into. He said that once they were out of the way, he could start putting the fight to Dean Jr. using the materials he was sure to find in their last stand. Upton Jr. asked the residents what it was like to have their leader abandon them in their most dire time of need. He pressed Dean Jr. to tell him how it felt to know that because of him, his precious little dome and all who lived in it will be made his B-words. Upton Jr.'s words were met with a silence that made him chuckle, believing 
that his far-right foe had nothing to say. The intercom went dead more suddenly than a room light turning off, halting his victorious raving dead in its tracks and uneasing his militants. When it switched back on, a wowed Dean Jr. asked his far-left enemy if he could be any more of an effing child. He was amazed at how Upton Jr. was so caught up in the glory of seizing the dome that he forgot to consider whether his adversary had an ace up his sleeve should the worst come to worst. Dean Jr. told his far-left opposites that they should have let themselves be shot dead when the chance to do so was still available. He described such a death as being quick and painless compared to the one he had in store for them. That was when, with the press of a button, he jammed shut the dome's exits, stunning Upton Jr. and startling his militants. Dean Jr. gave his red wasp enemies his word that gunning them down one, two, three wasn't on his agenda. He told Upton Jr. and his militants to bet their doomed behinds that the card in his hand also was neither poisonous or flaming hot. Holding the result of one of his lucks running out, Dean Jr. apologized to the residents for what he was about to do. That statement caused the six and their fellow shelterers' skins to crawl like ants all over their much larger meal. The rue aching Dean Jr.'s heart ran its course, turning into a repugnance more bellowing than a bull that's been teased one time too many. He vilified Upton Jr. and his militants for daring to think that the one step he had ahead of them would only entrap them. This brought Dean Jr. back to the shelterers whom he took to task for their repeated dishonoring of the yellow that crossed their blood. He told the residents that their fates were sealed the minute Lobotown fell to the Black Hornets. Not forgetting about the six, Dean Jr. hoped that they didn't have any kids as their young will suffer the consequences for all of their parents' failures from the demise of Gregorio Lobo University to messing up their inhibition break task. All he could do now was pray that others in his sphere of influence do a better job of honoring the cross, declaring that the shelterers' day was done and will now come crashing down. Dean Jr. announced his order to enact the last resort geared to the dome in the Sashonian Islands, shocking many in the facility and making a handful of them shriek. He typed in the paragraph long code for the action and overrode the notice that stated in all caps that only he could enact it by confirming his equally lengthy ID number. With the last resort's implementation now one button away, Dean Jr.'s deep breaths underscored his understanding that there was no turning back once it started. He thought of how Mosley and Turnbull would react to the news that Big Brother 
doomed little sister to a death so slow yet sure that it would make her beg for it to hurry up and happen. Dean Jr. concluded that the benefits of carrying out the last resort far outweighed any harm it could inflict on his operation. He imagined looking at every yellow crosser who died during the Battle of Lobotown in the eye, calling them the past, himself the present, and his children the future. Dean Jr. was calm and stern as he pressed the button and said that may his wrath now rain down on the sheep and their herder. The last resort started with every beam that supported the dome and buildings in it being severed in two like power saws cutting through wood. It bloated, set structures out like a spear early in its explosion, but not quite in the thicket of it either. The gravity keeping the dome and its buildings together had a reliability that barely lasted a moment. That was the stage that commenced a roar that shook the shelter and had its dwellers drop, hold anything sturdy and cover their heads with their hands. The buildings were first to collapse into piles of rubble, dealing severe cracks to the alloy of tungsten and concrete that formed the hideaway's foundation. Shelterers like the six felt like it was the end of the world as they knew it, not realizing that the worst was still to come. The next roar that came their way made their ears pop and was the dome itself falling to pieces and using its additional weight to make the rubble and foundation as well as the ground under and around it to break like a bomb exploding on the ocean and cave 25 feet in. Upton Jr. fell out of his chair due to the deep scars that were dealt to his mind by the sound of his militants being crushed alive. He shakily climbed up to one of his computer's many keyboards as if he was scaling a tall mountain and sent out a distress signal that sprung Upton Sr. into action. The last thing Upton Jr. saw before passing out from all the stress and pressure was seeing a friend message him that they knew where he was. This was of no bother to him as he had his own surprise that'll welcome them to his compound. Sajonian forces stormed that same facility a short time later, finding no one and triggering the self-destruct sequence that Upton Jr. set up just after asking for his father's help. He languidly rose from his nap and smiled at the explosions his submarine was speeding away from, waiting to arrive at his fortress in the Prince Charles Mountains, Upton Jr.'s sinuses and stomach relaxed as he vowed not to let his most recent fallen die in vain. Both he and Dean Jr. moved on to their next respective orders of business like the previous one where their paths last crossed was a memory from long ago, but for the residents, the dome's collapse was still very much in their present, and so was the betrayal that resigned some 
to make their remaining days as fruitful as possible, and others to make breaking out the mission of their lives. For all the hurt stuffing up the shelter, its dwellers all agreed that Dean Jr. should pay for his unpardonable crime against his own people. Few shelterers were devastated by the collapse as the six were, all of whom looked up at the ceiling how a woman would after seeing the man who broke up with her in a way too loathsome to even imagine. By week's end, the administrators Dean Jr. trapped found that the shelter had enough food, water, and materials for it to be inhabitable for a very long time. Thus, the race to break free counted down from 6,935 days, 10 hours, 35 minutes, and 24 seconds. As that fight for survival was beginning, Upton Jr. and Dean Jr. were some ways into their battle with one another, other entities, and the world at large. And as fate would have it, Karma knew what they all did and had specific plans for each and every one of them. And that was the attacked estates. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at www.rss.com slash podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com. And lastly, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypalme slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero and come again for another gripping, thoughtful, and sinister episode of The Dystopian Republic.